Hello, friends. So glad that you're here today and that we get the opportunity to go into the Word of God together. But before we do, let's pause and pray. So if you could just settle yourself wherever you are, wherever you're joining in from, just close your eyes, take a deep breath. Our God, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word together. We thank you for being a God who is alive and active in our lives. Bring back to our minds right now, I pray, all the many ways that we experienced your goodness this week. You have been so wonderful to us. Hear the praise of our hearts just now, I pray. And God, as we open up your word together, wherever we are, I pray that our, the Holy Spirit would connect us and that our hearts would be drawn to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. We continue our series today in the book of Philippians, and this is Paul's message to the church in Philippi. It's a letter. He writes this from house arrest. He writes this from an experience that he's going through where he's confined, he's suffering, he's mentally, he's experiencing the challenge, the struggle that we do when you just want to get out of the circumstance you're in, but you are powerless to do so. If you ever find yourself waiting, unable to change your circumstance, Paul knows that journey. And he writes this letter to these people that he loves. We're in Philippians chapter 3, and I invite you to turn there. Philippians chapter 3, and this day, verses 1 to 11. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If others think that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. These words Paul wrote, he begins with rejoice. Now this is his most frequent phrase. He says joy or rejoicing more times than any other of his letters. He finds himself in suffering and yet he uses the word joy more than any other time. It's like Paul has found a deep well of joy and rejoicing in Jesus that his circumstances do not determine. He starts off this part with praise. Why is praise so powerful? 
How is it that praise is able to lift us up from where we are and take us to another place? Perhaps you find yourself like Paul in the midst of something difficult, in the midst of waiting, in the midst of challenge or struggle. Praise has the ability to remind us of God's presence, to make us aware of something bigger that is going on. It enthralls the mind with God, that we suddenly become consumed with God when we rejoice, when we praise, when we think about who God is. I think also praise honors God because we acknowledge that there is more going on than the circumstance we find ourselves in. This book, Prophets and Kings, on page 559 says, God is honored by the expression of praise. God is honored when no matter what we're facing, we choose by faith to praise, to remember who God is in spite of our circumstance. Praise actually lifts us above our situation. We pray in the midst of our suffering, but we praise and we find ourselves lifted higher, lifted up above where we are right now. Paul had this experience with Silas when he and Silas found themselves in jail and they start praising. They start singing hymns. Yes, they start off in prayer, but then they start praising for who God is and they start singing these hymns of praise and it lifts them out of where they are, where they find themselves. Perhaps we could think of praise as not our gift to God because sometimes we're trying to contrive something to give back, but perhaps we could start to think of praise as a gift God gives to us, that as we fix our mind on who God is, that God's gift to us is to lift us out of our circumstance and remind us of how marvelous the one in whose presence we are in, the, how marvelous and great and awesome and exceedingly powerful our God is. So our minds become captivated and consumed by who this God is and that Instead of it being us gifting something to God, it's God gifting something to us. You know, I think Paul found himself there. Rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. So as Paul opens that way, he then goes into warnings and uses some really strong language. There were some missionaries people that were going from Galatia to Philippi, spreading this message, this theology that Paul is deeply concerned with because their gospel was mixed. It's Jesus Christ is part of it, but it's Jesus plus something else, which concerned Paul deeply. They were saying Gentile believers had to become Jewish in order to be saved. Paul's strong desire to warn this beloved Philippian church, these brothers and sisters of this theological danger means he uses such strong language here. He calls this group a group of dogs, men who do evil, mutilators of the flesh, extremely harsh language. This kind of language is typical in the scriptures of a prophet whose message is so urgent that the form is destined designed to shake them from their complacency so that they hear and understand the grave concern that the prophet has for them. John the Baptist says it this way in Matthew 3 and Luke 3, when he warns the Sadducees and the Pharisees, he said, you brood of vipers. 
Then Jesus' sermon to the Pharisees, he says, woe to you teachers of the law, you hypocrites. He goes through these woes. It's this language that's meant to grab our attention, to shake us from the place that we're in. And so he uses these titles, Paul does in Philippians 3, to get their attention. The prophetic form of Paul's statement then contributes to its meaning that, that he would want them to understand how grave the danger is when our theology becomes mixed like this. It might need some more contemporary context for us to understand why Paul is so concerned. These folks are called mutilators of the flesh because their confidence is in circumcision, this physical operation performed in the flesh, rather than their confidence being in God's gracious work through Jesus Christ. Now, most people understand the physical act of circumcision we don't need to look any deeper into that, but the spiritual significance we might need to go into. Genesis 17 tells of God instituting this right with Abraham, that every male must be circumcised in the whole household, otherwise they would be cut off from the people. In the early days of the Christian church, there were those who were called Judaizers who were unwilling to understand that the coming of Jesus and this gospel message made the literal observance of the circumcision rite unnecessary. There was a group that marched to Antioch to tell the Gentiles there, Acts 15 says it this way, unless you are circumcised according to the law taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. They were insisting on this, that those who understood the gospel that Paul preached responded with clarity though. They said, God has given the uncircumcised believers the Holy Spirit. So God has provided proof that these people are accepted just as we are. That these people are to be included in the people of God even though they did not have this physical right performed on them. Jews and Gentiles stand under the condemnation of the law, but for both Jews and Gentiles, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross provides redemption so that all are saved through belief in Jesus. This is a turning point. Acts chapter 15 is this huge turning point for the church where they understand together that no matter what your background, we all stand on level ground before Jesus who saves us. Now, Paul's use of this term, we, is so interesting in verse 3. He says here in verse 3, For it is we who are, are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. We, Paul says, are the true circumcision. He uses this pronoun we to show that he includes himself and the Philippians in the same group of believers. Paul, of course, was a circumcised Jew. He even mentions it a little bit later. And the Philippian church likely was composed of entirely uncircumcised Gentiles, physically uncircumcised. But the common ground, Paul says, is the commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the good news that we are saved by the everlasting love of God, seen in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So Paul says, we who are truly circumcised, that is of our hearts coming before God, depending on Jesus, glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul's word here for glory means to boast. 
and used with the other word he uses in the scriptures, it is often used, this combination of words, to indicate the ground of one's confidence. Not just boasting, but what you actually build your life on, your foundation or the ground of your confidence. The grounds of our confidence, Paul says, is Christ alone. The ground on which you build your life, the foundation is Christ alone. Now, in ancient Israel, there were times that the Israelites placed such confidence in possessing this physical mark, their election, they felt was secure, even as their hearts strayed far from God. In these instances, there were authors, prophets, writers in the Old Testament that reminded the people that the physical right should be symbolic of a deeper commitment. We see this in Isaiah 58. It's the perfect example. God actually tells the people through Isaiah, you do all this, all these things, and yet your hearts are far from me. The external should be the physical manifestation of something that has happened in your heart. And when Jesus comes and, and lives and dies and rises again, this external isn't required in the same way, but the heart's commitment. On another occasion in Hosea 6, 6, God says, I want mercy and not sacrifice. I want your hearts. Where are your feet planted? Paul says this to the Philippians, ask us here today, what is the ground of our confidence? In what do you boast? What gives you your security and your grounding? Paul regards confidence in the flesh and confidence in Christ as mutually exclusive. From his perspective, it is impossible to have one foot planted spiritually trusting Jesus and one foot planted on trusting in yourself and your own good works. You can't straddle these two. He says the foundation is Christ. I boast in Christ. My confidence is in Christ. We must plant our feet firmly on the ground that will support and sustain us, and that is Christ Jesus. Paul then goes on in verse 4 to talk about his own advantages. He says that though others think that they have reasons for confidence, I still have more. Circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in the regards to the law of Pharisee, another important elite sect. As for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Two types of advantages or privileges, if you will, those that were Paul's by birth and those that he attained himself by his work. His parents supplied him with impeccable credentials as a member of God's people. They made sure he was circumcised, so these things happened to him. Racially, he had identity in the people of Israel. His membership was a part of the Israelite tribe that gave Israel its first king. He had the ability to speak the language of his people. And then he added to this the things that he did himself, perfectly keeping the law, his zeal that led him to persecute the church. Now in verse 7 to 11, Paul says, I was going along in my life perfectly okay with all of this as my standing with God. And then we know from his story in Acts that suddenly God arrested Paul's attention and he saw himself for who he was. He saw himself sinful, and fallen, no longer able to boast and have confidence in all of these things. After he sees himself for who he is, fallen, fallible, 
human efforts tainted by sin. He sees himself for who he is. And after he sees Christ, he considers everything else he used to have confidence in as complete garbage, complete rubbish, he says. One commentary says this, by saying that he considers everything to be a loss, Paul does not mean that his Jewish upbringing, the law, or all of these things were evil, but that his attitude toward them were evil. At his conversion, he had to drop the notion that he and God were partners in the project of justification, and he had to accept the means for righteousness that God alone provided. Paul summarizes this with the phrase, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. God and me, we're not partners in this. I'm saved by the justification of Jesus Christ alone. And then he says, I get this privilege of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. We too must come face to face with the fact that we cannot earn right standing with God. We cannot be worthy enough by our life decisions, by how we keep the Sabbath, by how you honor your marriage, by how you serve. You cannot be good enough through anything, and neither can I. It's not because of our righteousness that we are saved. It's because of the love of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes would not perish, but have everlasting life. Second Corinthians 5, 21, that God made him who had no sin, that is Christ, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What an amazing transformational act God does that Jesus was treated as if he were sinful and we are treated as if we are righteous, that we become the actual righteousness of God. Righteousness meaning morally just, upright, virtuous, law-abiding, this rightness, this wholeness, this perfection that comes only from God. The understanding of righteousness in the Old Testament even went beyond the Greek understanding of righteousness. It was breaking faith with God, trampling on a relationship with God that God wanted to have with the people. That was unrighteousness. And so the righteousness of God was more than this it was bringing back together a relationship, not just a legal act, but actually coming together in wholeness of relationship again. To establish relationship with us, God making him who had no sin to become sin for us, that God actually broke relationship within God's self, within the Godhead, to redeem and stretch out to embrace us in love, actually breaking down relationship and restoring relationship by drawing us close. It's love that changed us, and it's love that changes us still. The relationship with God, a God who is willing to risk all and give all for us. In friendship or in marriage or in parenting, it's actually love, <laughs> perfect acceptance of who we are that allows us to change. Think about it. Did you change for the people who caused you to live in fear? Did you change for the ones that were judgmental and towering over you and correcting your mistakes constantly? Or did you change in your life when someone saw more in you than you thought you had? Did you change because someone believed in you 
or because someone accepted you for who you are and loved you right where you were and then loved you into some better and fuller expression of who you are. It's God's love that finds us. When we truly experience acceptance, we have safety to become, safety to change, to transform God working in us as we heard before earlier in this letter, both to will and to do God's good pleasure. Now, we don't earn our place. We continue to depend on God so the transformation becomes full in our life. Righteousness before God comes fully and completely from God. As Ellen White says, Christ for our sake became poor, though we for, that we, through his poverty might be made rich. And any works that humans can render to God are far less than nothingness. My requests are made acceptable only because they are laid at Christ's righteousness. The idea, she says, of me doing anything to merit the grace of pardon is fallacy from beginning to end. And then she quotes, Lord, in my hand no price I bring, simply to your cross I cling. We could not do it on our own. So Jesus stretches out arms of love and says, I will reach to you. Righteousness, not from the law, not from our own works, but from God. So Paul says, I lose all that I thought I had, all that I thought would gain me favor with God, all that I thought I had that would gain me eternal life, all that I thought made me worthy or acceptable or right before God, all that I thought I had going for myself, I consider it a loss. I lose it all that I may gain Christ. Whatever you've been called to give up might feel like a lot. Trusting in ourselves might feel like all we've got, but losing our life actually means we find it. Jesus told us this. It gives us life more abundantly than we could even imagine. I brought this rope here with me and this rope symbolizes this end right here symbolizes our life. This little section right now that we have, these 60, 70, 80 years, if we're, if we're blessed, we get that long. Some get 90, 100, some get less. But whatever it is, it's small compared to all of eternity that we will have with Jesus Christ forever. So when we see eternity stretching before us, we realize that anything, any little bit that we might lose here, that we feel like we might lose, there's so much more to be gained, so much stretching out over all eternity that we realize we aren't actually losing anything at all. Paul says, I might have lost those things which I thought gave me confidence and assurance and grounding, but I really didn't lose anything at all. I gained everything in Christ. In verse 10 and 11, Paul emphasizes this as he says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. There's no such thing as cheap grace. People who worry that if you're dependent on God alone, then what will your life look like? For Paul's response, he says, nothing else matters except Christ. Jesus at the center, Jesus, the most important of it all. 
but I want to be obedient to Christ, he says. Even the most costly obedience, which is to death and his resurrection. A response to love that is even willing to die for the person, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the relationship that he has with him. In response to God's gracious res rescue, Paul says, I give you my everything. I want to even attain to participation in your death, in your suffering, and then of course, the hope of the resurrection, eternity. Whatever you're giving up, whatever you feel like you're laying down in surrender before God right now, there is so much more in the fullness of Christ that God wants to give us. Paul says, everything that I thought was the foundation of my life, everything that I thought grounded me, it's all nothing. It's all lost. But I gained so much more back. Christ alone, nothing more, nothing less. This is the message of love from God's heart to you and to me today. This message that we might need the same warning Paul was giving to the Philippians, that it's easy to get distracted by other theologies, by other things, like by things that come along where we think that we have partnership with God in making ourselves right before God or somehow earning the favor and the love. You already have it. Let me tell you this, you already have the deepest love in God. You already have God's favor. You already have God's pure delight in you. Let yourself come to that place, looking into the face of love, because truly that is the only place where lasting change comes from. Being in the accepting, loving presence of God is the only place where change can happen. So that we can actually join Paul in saying, everything is lost and everything is gained in Christ. Would you join me in reflecting on how God might want to make this more your reality today? What is it that you are called? What is your, your losing everything right now in this moment in order to gain Christ? What are those things that you might list out as the merits for which you have been standing on that you just need to let go of in surrender so that you instead can find your hope and your assurance and your confidence and your grounding in Christ alone. That is the invitation for us today.